I invite you then to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. As uh, you may remember in our series in Mark's uh, Gospel, we're having an overview of larger sections so that we can see the big picture of the Gospel of Jesus. And so I'll read from Mark chapter 10, from verse 1 through to verse 31. Let's hear God's Word. And Jesus left there and went to the region Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your harness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teach all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, We have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last First, this is God's word. Please be seated.
If uh, over the uh, holiday season you have had the misfortune of trying to get on an airplane and you actually took the time to look at the uh, safety instructions, you'll remember that right at the top of those safety instructions it always tells us to leave your possessions behind in case of an emergency. It has struck me that that kind of instruction is a surprising one that apparently is required to give. You would have thought it was obvious, but uh, surveys show that uh, actually in a state of emergency, whether in a plane or a building, we humans tend to go back for our purse or laptop, uh, even at risk of our very lives. And here in this uh, passage this morning, we have three stories, each in the domain of family, that are showing us people who have been tempted to go back uh, for their possessions, even at uh, the risk of their very lives, uh, rather than escape the burning building of those lives to find salvation uh, through Jesus. And what Mark is teaching us in this story, these three stories, as I say, each in the domain of family, is that Jesus is worth leaving everything. And he does that in three ways in these, each of these three stories. Jesus is worth leaving everything. Someone agrees with me. First of all, Jesus is worth leaving liberty, verses 1 through to 12. This is his famous teaching about divorce and remarriage. To understand it and why it is essentially teaching us that Jesus is worth leaving even so-called liberty, we need to see its context at three levels. At one level, what is going on here is the disciples are trying to set Jesus a trap about a question regarding a divisive doctrinal debate related to, of course, divorce. If you read the commentaries, it's usually explained to us that the rabbis of the time were split into two groups, one more conservative and the other more liberal, though actually in either case they were giving permission to remarry. Deuteronomy 24, which is the Old Testament text at the back of this, is in the context of remarriage. Divorce was assumed in ancient times always to lead to remarriage. Indeed, the certificate of divorce from Jewish times in those days read, you now have permission to marry any man. That was divorce leading to remarriage. But there were these two Camps, one more conservative and one more liberal. And of course, to present this question to Jesus was presenting him a theological trap. If he took one side or the other side, he would be likely to leave behind some of his supporters. And so it was a theological trap about a divisive doctrinal debate, as it is still today, a divisive doctrinal debate. But at another level, I say there are these three levels we need to understand, another level is more than that. So verse 1 tells us where Jesus was. Verse 1, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. 
he, Mark is telling us very specifically where Jesus is. And the reason why is because Jesus has now gone back to the region where the notorious King Herod had political power. And earlier in Mark's gospel, we have been told that King Herod had beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist had confronted King Herod for his divorce. King Herod had divorced his first wife, and then married his brother's wife, and at the instigation of uh, Herodias, his wife at that time, and her daughter, he had then beheaded John the Baptist. And so what the Pharisees are doing here is they're presenting Jesus with a question whereby if he takes a more conservative approach, or indeed even at those times a more liberal approach, he would be at risk of lethal jeopardy from King Herod. So this is both a doctrinally divisive trap, but also a political trap that could lead, if Jesus gets the answer uh, wrong, to his own uh, death. The Pharisees are setting him a trap at two levels. But at its most profound level, this is a question that is revealing the essential issue that Mark wants us to grasp, which is that to follow Jesus means leaving behind even our so-called liberty. Amazingly, the Pharisees are actually taking the liberal approach here. We tend to think of the Pharisees as always conservative, but that is a misunderstanding. The Pharisees, because they were legalistic, they wanted to be saved by the law, needed thereby to downgrade the law's demands so that they could keep them. They needed to liberalize the law, God's word, so that it was possible for them to keep them because they didn't uh, accept salvation by grace through faith. They were legalistic. And here again, they are downgrading his demands. The Pharisees are concerned with what is permissible. Is it lawful or permissible for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 2. And then Jesus uh, replies that you are only concerned with what is allowed, verse 4. The Pharisees are concerned what they can get away with. They're concerned with what is allowed, what is permissible, rather than Jesus' emphasis on what is commanded. And because of this concern for them for what they can get away with, what they're allowed to do, what is permissible, or what they have liberty to do, they are refusing to leave behind their so-called liberty in order to follow the commands of God, in order to follow Jesus. The Pharisees are, as it were, this is an illustration I think is a little bit helpful. If you imagine a parent says to a child, if you break your sister's toy, then you need to do so-and-so. That was, uh, in essence, Moses' teaching. If there is a remarriage and a divorce, then you need to do such and such. If you break your sister's toy, then you need to do so and so. The Pharisees were interpreting that to mean, in essence, therefore I have permission to break my sister's toy. That's not Moses' intention. It's a permission to manage a regrettable instance. And they're taking that to give them liberty to do what Jesus says is not commanded. So what Jesus does in this teaching is he goes back then to what is commanded. He goes back to the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he quotes from them to establish the standard. Not the theoretical ideal, but God's standard that he is commanding that we keep. 
And so what Jesus is teaching here is that God's standard is one that we need to keep. We need to leave behind our so-called liberty in order to follow God's word. He sets for us a standard of gender, G-E-N-D-E-R, the gender standard. Jesus says, uh, in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There you have it. If we're following Jesus and following the Bible, Jesus is saying there is a standard that is related to the biological created facts of gender. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Jesus does teach on that issue of gender. That is the standard. But then he also teaches on marriage. Here it is. This is the standard. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man separate so the marriage standard is one man one woman for life we've got to leave Mark is saying our our liberty our so-called liberty in order to embrace God's standard Now, you may have many questions about that, as the disciples also did. They go and ask him about this privately in the house afterwards. And certainly you can feel free to ask questions afterwards about this standard that Jesus is setting. Some of us will know that uh, the Bible and Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus teaches an exception for adultery. And uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians teaches an exception for the desertion of uh, an unbelieving spouse of a believer. These are complicated matters that have to be worked through in pastoral situations. But we must not downplay the standard, the gender standard and the marriage standard. It is clearly taught by Jesus himself in the Bible. And if you have a Christian teachers out there telling you that the Bible doesn't talk about male and female or marriage, they're denying, I believe, what Jesus here clearly teaches. Now, uh, pastorally, let me add this word before we move on to the, the next part, the next of these three stories. Pastorally, it is eminently obvious that none of us keep God's standards. And indeed, if we are to define adultery biblically as Jesus defines it, that is, adultery happens when we even look at a man or woman with lust in our heart, then surely there are none here, or very few, who have not broken God's standards. But there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a door that is open, and you, sinner, may go in. There is grace and salvation for those who break God's standards and an opportunity to start again this new year with Jesus. And I want then to offer that to you by means of these next two stories that Mark does for us. So first of all, Jesus is worth leaving liberty. He's worth leaving everything. He's that amazing. Jesus is that extraordinary. He's worth leaving everything to have. He's even worth leaving so-called liberty to have. Our liberty of doing whatever we want. No, follow Jesus, Mark is saying. Second, Jesus is worth leaving our respectability. This is verses 13 to 16. Now here we have another story that needs to be contextualized in order to grasp it. 
It's a story, of course, about the little children and Jesus allowing the little children to come to him. But what we need to grasp is that in ancient times, the attitude to little children was precisely the reverse of our attitude today. Today, children are respected and the elderly are disrespected. In ancient times, it was precisely the reverse. Children were marginalized. The elderly were upheld for honor and respect. And so for Jesus to bring the little children into the center of the platform, into the center of his circle, was a reversal of the expected norms. Our culture today is a child-focused, um, a child-centered culture. A cent- we have enormous romantic sentimentality about childhood and children. But in ancient world, it was precisely the reverse. Children were marginalized, not respectable to be childish. There was no youth culture that was held up for respect and glamour and coolness. It was the elderly who held up for respect. And so for Jesus to put the little children in the middle is not to advocate immaturity or innocency or sentimental childishness. What Jesus is doing is he's putting at the very heart of what it means to be in the kingdom of God, the reverse of what we think it means to be in the kingdom of God, not our respectability. I was at a um, a very large Christian conference a little while ago, and uh, there were many thousands of people there. And as usual in these very large conferences, on the platform were what I, in my rather cynical moods, uh, call the platform dudes. They all had on their designer clothes, it was very much, those of you who follow this Instagram site, it was very much preachers and their sneakers. They looked so trendy, so cool, it was amazing. And I noticed also at this conference, outside another room, there was a space for all the children. And they were running around riotously having great fun, which was wonderful to see. But I asked myself, What would it be like if instead of having the platform dudes on the platform, the children were given the run of the whole stage? But then I asked myself, is that really what Jesus is teaching here, or is it a little bit more radical? What would it be like if instead of the children being given the run of the platform, the most dependent people were put on the platform? What would it be like If on the platform were put those who are very elderly, even infirm, what would be like if the poor were put on the platform? What would be like if the homeless were put on the platform? What would be like if those that we take care of but don't hold up for respect were put in the heart of what Jesus says is the heart of what it means to be in the kingdom of God? What would it be teaching us? What would it be teaching us if someone said, To such as these, the poor, the marginalized, the elderly, the infirm, belongs the kingdom of heaven. What would he be saying? What he'd be saying is to be in the kingdom of God at all. It requires leaving behind your respectability, your sense of I'm the man, I'm so cool, I'm so strong, and instead to be utterly dependent upon God. 
to cry out to him and say, Lord, I can do nothing. I'm like a little child who's totally and utterly dependent upon my heavenly father. Look, if you want to experience the goodness of God this new year, his blessing, what you need to do is come to him and say, look, this is not kid stuff, this church. I'm not too cool for God. I don't like this or that about the church. I'm the man, I'm in control and leave all that behind and come to him on bended knee and curl up in his heavenly father arms and say, Lord, I am dependent on you. Leave behind your, I am respectable person and depend upon him and cry out to him for mercy like a little child understood in the context of those times. And so we come to the final of these Three stories about leaving everything behind because Jesus is so worth it. And of course, it is the rich young man. And this runs from verses 17 to verse 31. And he runs up to Jesus and he looks like he's got everything together. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But actually, as a rich young man, he's coming up to Jesus, as it were, with the sales patter, the sales pitch on Friend, good teacher, he wants to have eternal life, but he's trying to win Jesus over with the way that he's won over so many people to get so much money. And Jesus sees right through him. He says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, verse 18. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you're calling me good, you're speaking more truly than you know because I, Jesus, am God. In the Bible, people are very rarely called good and only as an extension of the goodness of God. And so for the rich young man to come up to Jesus and call him good, Jesus is pointing out that he himself is speaking truly about Jesus because Jesus truly is God, even though the rich young man doesn't recognize that. Hold on to that thought. It gets more amazing. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Well, Jesus is good because he is God alone. Then he says to them, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Notice that. Actually, Jesus is summarizing the teaching of the Ten Commandments, which says here, do not covet. Covetousness is desiring that which you do not have legitimately as yours. And of course, the rich young man was guilty very much of covetousness. He had an idol that was money. And Jesus, instead of quoting that command that, of course, he had broken over and over again, he gives it an external form. Don't steal. Don't defraud. He's pointing out, trying to point out that there's something deeper going on that the rich young man is ignoring him. But even more amazingly, so often missed in all the commentaries and so many of the sermons I've heard on this passage, Jesus only quotes from the second half of the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because the rich young man had entirely not kept the first half of the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments are all about loving God and putting God first. And worshiping God alone. But the rich young man was not doing that. He may have been moral externally, not internally, he was coveting, but he was not a worshiper of God, he was a worshiper of money. And so Jesus, then, in a paradigmatic example of how to correct someone, Jesus, verse 21, looked at him, he saw him, 
He loved him. Yeah, he saw right through him, but he still loved him. And then he spoke. He said to him, he looked, he loved, and he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. An unwary reader of this passage would think that Jesus is saying two things. First of all, go sell all your possessions, and then, second, come follow me. But actually, Jesus makes it very clear he's speaking about one thing. One thing you lack. What is that one thing he lacks? The one thing he lacks is the whole of the first half of the Ten Commandments, namely following God, namely loving God, namely following Jesus. Hence, he's been called to follow Jesus. His idol was money, and therefore he needed to get rid of money to follow Jesus. Jesus does not tell everyone to sell all their possessions, because not for, not for everyone is that the idol that prevents us from following Jesus. This was this man's problem. He worshipped money, and therefore he needed to stop doing that in order to worship Jesus. It isn't the problem for everyone. There can be many other different idols, which is why Jesus then expands it to all sorts of uh, lands and brothers and sisters and mother and and children, all sorts of other potential barriers to following Jesus. But it was this person's barrier. Perhaps it is our barrier, your barrier, your idol, money. Some of the people who most worship money that I've ever come across in my life have been some of the poorest You shouldn't assume that if someone is wealthy, they are necessarily idolatrous about money. Often it is not always the case, but it can often be the case that the poor idolize money. I think that by and large, we are a generous church. We give extraordinarily. I was amazed to see our Thanksgiving offering was was significantly over what was asked for. We are a generous church. Our care and share fund gives away enormous amount of money to those in need every single year. We are a generous church. And yet, looking at this passage, I ask myself, what would it be like if every year we met the budget that we have agreed to as a church? What would it be like if every single member and regular attender at Cottage Church gave something to the church? I suspect that all of us can give something, even if it is one dollar. What would that be like? And perhaps then, money is an idol for you. Uh, John Wesley's advice is uh, still, I think, the best. He said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So yes, by all means, make money and then be generous with it. So Jesus here is worth leaving our so-called liberty behind to find that in his service is perfect freedom. Jesus is worth leaving our respectability behind to find that in depending upon him, we enter the kingdom of heaven and discover life. And Jesus is worth leaving even money behind in order that we might discover true riches. And then, of course, as we conclude, the question that uh, naturally arises is how and then why? And Jesus answers both those questions. How? He says, this is impossible, but not with God. 
For all things are possible with God. This is not a, a philosophical, theoretical statement of the omnipotence of God, that God is able to do everything. It is a statement soteriologic, soteriologically of the salvation power of God. How then can anyone be saved is the question. And Jesus says, this is impossible with man, but not impossible with God. All things are possible with God. That is, it is possible for us to be saved if, unlike the Pharisees, we leave behind our liberty to do whatever we want and instead like the children that Jesus evidences we depend upon God because God by his sovereign grace is able to save therefore us today we today can discover his saving power this new year because he is able to do it how it is by his sovereign grace that's how we can leave everything to radically commit ourselves to him Why? Because, as Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a radical reversal of what we expect. It isn't the, uh, the, the rich. It isn't the, uh, the, 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 the so-called honorable in the world's eyes. It is those who are dependent upon God who find salvation. Upside-down kingdom. And Jesus tells us why. Truly, I say to you, verse 29, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions. And that that too is true. If we follow Jesus radically, even in America, there'll be opposition to following Jesus. We'll be going against the stream, but it's a joyful joyful, uh, following Jesus. It's more like a salmon leaping upstream than a sort of depressive thing, because here, look, no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands will receive a hundred times in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Yeah, persecutions, but a hundred times in this life and in the age to come eternal life. And that promise of Jesus has been kept Time and time again, if you follow Jesus this new year, you will discover a new international family of God that will be with you in the darkest times and the best of times. You'll have a new mothers, new brothers, new sisters. God blesses those who follow him, not always with material blessings, but with the family of God. If you commit your life to Jesus this morning, you'll discover fresh rewards for following him. If you spend your life in telling other people about Jesus, you'll have new brothers and new sisters and a new family of God that will enrich your life in every truly meaningful way. You'll find that Jesus is worth leaving everything. He's worth leaving so-called liberty that we might have true freedom through serving him. He's worth leaving so-called respectability so that we depend upon him and discover, therefore, we have true honor as being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. He's worth leaving even, yes, money, even money, because true riches come from those who follow Jesus. One of my favorite uh, uh, hymn writers, Augustus, Top Lady, uh, he isn't my favorite hymn writer just because he rejoices in the last name Top Lady, though it's a great last name. He put it like this, Lord, it is not life to live if thy presence thou deny. Lord, if thou thy presence give, tis no longer death to, to die. If you have Jesus 
then you have everything and therefore he is worth leaving everything behind to have. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, thank you for this uh, New Year's. We thank you for our families. We pray that in our families we would um, encapsulate, uh, exemplify uh, the value, Lord, here that uh, is being taught by Mark uh, as he recalls Jesus' teaching that following Jesus is worth leaving everything for. Help us not, Lord, to hold on to our possessions, our things, our ideas, our freedoms, but instead come to you and see that in you is all that is truly valuable. Lord, if you uh, deny your presence, that is not life to live, but if you give your presence, even, even death is no longer death. We have you. Lord, open up to us, Lord, your supreme value uh, this morning, we pray. And may that mark us as individuals and as a church in this new year, 2023. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.